There's been a lot of bad stuff in 2020. But one good thing in 2020 is a book that came out called Gentle and Lowly. It's a book about Jesus. It's about the heart of Jesus. The author, Mr. Dane Ortland, presents Jesus in a way that has warmed the hearts of, of most who have read it. It's one of those few books that uh, I think in one sense is going to quickly become a classic. Uh, and, and, and as you, I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but the, the way that it's been received, um, it's been very similar among all sorts of backgrounds of Christians, regardless of you're in high church or kind of non-denominational informal church, whether you're young or old or rich or poor, your eth ethnic background, it, it's, it's been striking how similarly people have viewed the way that this book uh, ought to be received. And the reason is because of the way that it lays Jesus before us. He is presented as tender and loving and gentle with sinners and sufferers alike. We learn that his, his natural work, what he loves to do is to give mercy, to help those who are needy, to give forgiveness to sinners, that it's actually our sin that compels him to move closer to us rather than away and hold his nose, as Dane would say. And we need to hear that, don't we? We need to know that there's a Savior who loves to give mercy to sinners like you and me. we come to Revelation chapter 19 this morning, we're going to get a picture of Jesus that appears anything but gentle and lowly. He comes with a, a sword in his mouth. His eyes are blazing with fire. The blood of his enemies stains his robe. One of the things we have to understand is that this too is a true picture of Jesus. The scriptures tell us that he is kind and severe, that he is patient and vengeful. Well, how can that be? How can he be both? Well, we'll ask Dane to help us from his book. This is from the chapter, He Can Deal Gently, page 54. Hebrews 5.2 tells us that Jesus can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. The point is that Jesus deals gently and only gently with all sinners who come to him, irrespective of their particular offense and just how heinous it is. What elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of the sin, but whether the sinner comes to him. Whatever our offense, he deals gently with us. If we never come to him, we will experience a judgment so fierce, it will be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. If we do come to him, as fierce as his lion-like judgment would have been against us, so deep will his lamb-like tenderness be for us. We will be enveloped in one or the other. To no one will Jesus be neutral. That is part of the point of the book of Revelation, is to show you that there, Jesus is not going to be neutral with you. 
that in this life, people respond to him in different ways. Many people are either apathetic or indifferent or just outright opposed, where others delight and love in him. But there's, there's no middle ground with Jesus. Jesus makes it very clear you are either for him or against him. And if you are for him and cry out to him and say, I am a sinner, I need mercy, he loves to get it. He loves to give it to you. It's his heart. But if you will not humble yourself and you will rather in pride hold on to your sins and your right to be you and do whatever you want to do, you will know the fierceness of his holiness and wrath. That is the picture that we find in the book of Revelation this morning, chapter 19, verses 11 and following. This passage concludes the fifth of six repeating cycles of human history throughout the book of Revelation from the resurrection of Jesus to his return. This fifth cycle began in chapter 17. And now we see here in chapter, uh, last week in chapter 19, 1 through 10, we saw the praise for his justice and then the marriage supper of the Lamb. And now we see that justice and how it's brought about without filter. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come! Gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those whose worship its image, those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. If we attempted to summarize what this sobering section of Scripture is about, we might say it's something like this. 
Jesus is coming soon to execute judgment on all who oppose his rule. Jesus is coming soon to execute judgment on all who oppose his rule. And the implicit message throughout the rest of the book is that in light of that, we ought respond rightly today before that day comes. Now, as with the, book, uh, the rest of the book of Revelation, this chapter is filled with symbolism. There's all kinds of symbols. Jesus comes on a white horse. The armies of heaven come on white horses. Jesus has sword in his mouth. His eyes are like a flame of fire. We see all kinds of, of symbolism. And it's important to remember that apocalyptic literature, meaning literature that's about the end times, that's prophetic in nature, very often is filled with pictures that describe realities that are so outside of our box that we can't actually capture unless we see it. So they give these pictures to help us to understand what uh, God wants us to be able to see in our, our, our feeble, frail minds. It's also important to understand, as we've mentioned throughout this book, is that much of the symbolism is drawn from other places in Scripture, particularly the Old Testament. Throughout the book of Revelation, there's some 600 allusions to the Old Testament because the whole book of Revelation is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God in Jesus. We're going to see that is important this, this morning, as you probably even heard with some of the Acts 2 references, kind of all, Acts 2, uh, Psalm 2 references all over this, this text. The way we're going to consider this, this section here, verses 11 through 19, is in, in two parts. The first is the great Savior of justice. The great Savior of justice is Jesus. That's 11 through 16. And then verses 17 through 21, the great supper of judgment. The great supper of judgment, verses 17 through 21. Let's begin here with the great Savior of, of justice. As we've said already, the, the focus of the book of Revelation is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 1 calls this book the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what's the book of Revelation all about? It's all about Jesus. He has, he's been revealed in his glory, and here he is revealed as the long-awaited Savior who will defeat evil once and for all. This scene that we have read here is, it is spectacular and it is sobering. It is grisly and at the same time glorious. This one who is gentle with repentant sinners is also just with those who will not repent. He comes, verse 11, on a white horse, I saw... This is John speaking, recounting the revelation given to him in this vision. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Again, the opening of heaven, uh, we've seen this several times in Revelation, uh, indicates a shift in, from one scene to another. So we just saw the marriage supper of the Lamb, and now John's going to see how that comes about. How does it come about? It comes when Jesus returns and judges his enemies. He comes here on a white horse. This is a universal symbol of victory. In Greek mythology, Zeus 
comes riding on a, a white-winged pegasus. Right? And throughout history, kings and generals, including Roman emperors, which would have been most on the forefront of this original audience, would have rode white horses after a victorious battle. Well, this rider, he doesn't wait till after the battle to be riding this white horse, but rather he comes before the battle because his victory is so certain. He comes into battle on the white horse because he will not be defeated. He is the risen, victorious king who comes to crush his enemies and lead his citizens to glory forevermore. White throughout the book of Revelation is a symbol of, of purity. We've seen in this book that Jesus, uh, he has white hair in the beginning of, of the book. We see that he gives a white stone to his uh, his children who persevere, or his, his people who persevere. And then in 1914, we see here that he gives garments of fine linen, white and pure, to his, his, his people. He is holy, and they are made like him in holiness and splendor. This is the picture here. So here comes this victorious, holy Savior. The one sitting on the white horse is called Faithful and True. This rider, what we, we know about him is his character. There are certainly descriptions of him where we kind of get in, in our mind's eye what it might look like, but I think the author would even more want us to know what he is like. He is faithful and he is true. He's called faithful because he keeps his promises. He's called true because all he does in, is in accordance with facts. There's no lies, there's no tainted evidence that drives his case against these who he is about to deal with. Rather, in righteousness he judges and makes war. It's righteousness that drives this encounter. Because he's good, he will deal with evil. You see, we live in a world where some judges make unrighteous rulings, and some kingdoms wage unjust wars. But that is not the case with Christ Jesus. As Psalm 72, which is in the background playing for those who would be familiar with it, that testifies that the judgment the Messiah brings and the war that he rages is done in righteousness. And God has warned the world that this day is coming. So when it comes, people will be surprised, but they should not be surprised. Listen again to Acts 17 that we heard read earlier. Acts 17.30, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Now notice here, God does not think Christianity is a Western white religion. He seems to think that this Jewish Messiah is a savior of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn from their sins because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who is this man and how can we be certain that that's going to happen? Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God says, I'm going to judge the world and everyone needs to turn from their sin and 
cry out to me for forgiveness and mercy. Well, prove to us that you're gonna judge the world. I will, because I'm gonna send my son first, and he's gonna fall under my judgment, and then he's gonna be raised from the dead, and if you will turn, you can be forgiven. And the fact that I rose him from the dead is proof that I have power to forgive sins, and I have power over life and death, including yours, so repent because this one who rose will soon return. This is intended to prepare us for that day. As he comes, we see here in verse 12 that his eyes are like a flame of fire. At the beginning of John's vision in chapter 114, again, Jesus appears with these same eyes of fire. It's an allusion to Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, where one like a son of man prepares to bring judgment, and there he has eyes of fire. This, this fire is, it communicates this, this perfect purity of his vision. There's no, there's no spiritual cataracts that he has, right? There's no dross that blinds him, but he has pure vision. It's been purified by his very holiness. It remains purified by his very holiness which is very important to understand. When you see Jesus with these eyes of fire, let it not just make you a little nervous because you're like, wow, that looks creepy. That's not the intent. The intent is for you to see that he, he knows everything. He sees everything. That means there's nothing hidden from the all-seeing eye of Jesus. He sees and knows even the secrets of your heart. It is never safe to hide your sin because God sees it. Just ask Achan, who stole from the spoil he was not supposed to and buried it under his tent. And God comes and says, somebody's got something they shouldn't. God knows. He sees everything. So if you're here today and you've done a great job of hiding your double life, if you've done a great job of shredding documents and deleting emails and putting on a facade where everybody around you thinks that you're okay, just know Jesus knows. He knows everything. You cannot hide from the one who knows all and sees all. Jesus not only sees what is right, but he also has sovereign power to enforce what is right. Notice on his head are many diadems. His many crowns here boast of his unchallengeable, universal sovereignty. You may remember that, that the beast and the dragon wear crowns in Revelation chapter 12 and 13. They're posing as sovereigns worthy of glory and honor, and they're wooing the world to follow the world system that they rule over, claiming to have authority. But Jesus makes really clear here that he will not share his glory with counterfeit kings. He will expose them as frauds and shame them for their sins. Verse 12, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, this is interesting, right? Because there's, there is a way, there is a sense in which Jesus can be known now. We can, we can know him. We can know his name. This is why he's called, verse 13, the, the word of God. 
that echoes John's gospel, that presents this Jesus as the Word of God. He is the living, incarnate, which means in a body, message of God. So do you want to know what God is like? Study Jesus. Listen to his lessons. Observe how he serves. Look how he loves. Jesus is God in the flesh, the message, the word of God. Yet there's also a sense in which he has not fully revealed himself yet. There's a way that he's been known as the, the eternal son forever before time that we don't get yet. We understand what he was like as he entered into time in history because in his mercy, his word's been preserved for us. But there's, there's a way that we know in part now that when he returns in his splendor and his glory, we will know in full. And when he comes bearing this name that no one knows but himself, and he reveals it, some will, he will reveal um, this name and it will be, it will teach them of the fullness of his, his mercy, the, the pervasiveness of his peace, the greatness of his joy in a way that we never imagined. So for some, as we get to know this name that only he knows, it, would, it will be a well of riches that will never be extinguished, never be empty. It will be glorious. But for others... They will learn the greatness of his name through judgment. Those who in this life who have taken his name in vain, either through hearing a message like this and just yawning and checking your clock and ready to go do something else and being apathetic toward him, or making a joke about him, or just using his name as an expletive, or just being fine with empty religion, void of real heart change and a worshipful life, or blaspheming his name by using it for political gain. Regardless of how people didn't treat his name with reverence in this day, on that day, when he is revealed, they'll tremble before the one whose name is above every name, and they will bow before him. Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, at, at first glance, we might think that this blood on his robe is his own blood, right? And we'd have, we'd have good reason to think that. Jesus is indeed the Lamb of God who came and shed his blood to take away the sins of the world. And this is indeed the boast of God's people. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. 7.14 of the redeemed, it says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Right? So his blood is our boast. And indeed, he did shed his blood. But this is not his blood on this robe. You see, at his first coming, Jesus sheds his blood for his enemies. But at his second coming, Jesus sheds the blood of his enemies. Now, where is that in the Old Testament? What's well, in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 63, 
But the Lord appears, and he appears to save his people from their enemies, and he's asked a question when he appears. Why is your apparel red and your garments like he who treads in the winepress? A winepress, if you're not familiar in those days, you'd well, do it today too, but you have this, this circular kind of bin like a mini tub and you put grapes in it and you stomp on them and drains out and that's where you get grape juice for wine. And if you do that, you get it all over what you're wearing, of course. Well, the Messiah says in Isaiah 63, I have trodden the winepress. I trod them, his enemies, in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained my apparel. This is a grisly description of Jesus' judgment of his enemies. They've, they've long shed the blood of God's people with their slander and their swords and their systems of injustice, and now the Lord will avenge their blood. Now, I just want to interject something here. There's, there's two questions that often are paired together with people who, who read this and uh, rightly wrestle with it. The first question that people often ask is, just when they look at the world, if God's so good, why doesn't he do something about evil? If your God's so good and he cares so much, then why does he just let evil keep going? Very appropriate question and a great question. And if you've never wrestled with that question, then you need to start thinking like that. Well, what the Lord says is, oh, I'm going to deal with evil. And I'm going to deal with evil in such a way that it will make the hair on your neck stand up, as he says to Habakkuk. So then when we read a verse like this, the follow-up question is, if God's so good, how can he deal that harshly with evil? <laughs> Striking, isn't it? See, this is why it's important for us to not try to adjust God to our standards but to step back and say, Lord, show me who you are and teach me how to respond to who you are, both in your patience that ought move us to flee to you for mercy and also your justice, which is right and good because evil must be dealt with. You, Lord, know. just want to be clear. It makes sense to wrestle with those things. But in the end, we must remember that we are not God. But Jesus does not come to avenge his enemies alone. Verse 14, and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. You see, Jesus' judgment means destruction for his enemies, but it also means deliverance for his people. And here we find the redeemed, and possibly some angels, accompanying King Jesus into battle. So you might wonder, will we see the second coming? Yo, it's better than that. We will be the second coming. <laughs> you get to come with him. Now, he's doing it, but we're with him if you are in Christ. 
You see, we conquer with him now by faith, but then by sight. What will that ride be like? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, wow. Because we are united with Jesus, his victory becomes our victory. We come on white horses as well. You see, because of our devotion to him, who is holy, we are made holy. This is why the white linen is being worn. We saw that uh, last week. We see it again here. And what is the significance of us coming with him? This seems strange. Every believer in history who has been mocked, who has been disowned, who has been beaten, who has been martyred because of their love for God, will stand with Jesus, the just judge, and they will be vindicated. Listen to this from Psalm 44, 7. You have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. That's what's going to happen when Jesus returns. Now watch what it results in. In God, we have boasted continually, even when it was, looked like nonsense. <laughs> and we will give thanks to your name forever. Part of what will inspire the worship of God's people forevermore is when we see the depths of his justice brought against evil that oppressed his people. And we will give thanks to him that he saw every one of our tears that fell and every drop of blood that was shed and every bit of injustice that came against God's people from the, from the, the slaying of righteous Cain up to the last believer who is, whose life is taken by uh, some sort of, uh, of vengeance of, of the rebels of this world. All of those one day will stand with him and we will say thank you that you have made the world right. We will thank him forever because of this. There's no middle ground with Jesus. You're either for him or against him. Passages like this are intended to remind us of that. 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This is just packed with Old Testament allusions. This sharp sword comes from Isaiah 49.2 which is, says Messiah's mouth is like a sharp sword. Isaiah 11.4 we see Messiah will strike down the nations, the earth, with the rod of his mouth. The, the, the word that could have brought life to these rebels now will bring death because they res, refuse to receive and to believe and to obey him. They attempted to overthrow God's son in Psalm 2, but that passage says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He will come against them and will, as we see here, rule them with a rod of iron. He will put down their rebellion. He will bring against them the most horrific judgments imaginable. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty there in verse 15. As we mentioned, this is an allusion to Isaiah 63 where the winepress is a metaphor for the wrath of God. 
And just as grapes are crushed in the wine press, so the enemies will be crushed by his righteous judgment. Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. There's no doubt who this white horse riding warrior is. On his robe and on his thigh, which is where his sword that he now has in his mouth would have been sheathed, is embroidered King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, this king has no authority over him. All earthly kings and peasants alike are accountable to him. His rule is unmatched. His power is unrivaled. Every knee will bow to this man. Philippians 2 puts it this way, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In coming days, there's going to be much turmoil about who will be in the White House for the next four years. Texts like this help us to keep it in perspective, to remember that no matter who holds the seat of authority in the White House, they will bow before the one who rules upon the white horse. Every knee will bow to him. He's the king. He's the Lord. He's the hope of God's people. By the way, God did not want the kings of Israel to get this twisted, which they often did. So I don't know if you know this or not, but Deuteronomy chapter 17, um, as soon as a king is established in Israel, you have an assignment, day one. You get a parchment and whatever you're writing with, and you have to copy the entire Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You have to write the whole thing out and then just to make sure you didn't try and edit it for your advantage, you had to get a priest to come in and they would check it. And then you were commissioned every single day to read it. That's number one for the king. Because Israel's kings need to know that though they're a king, they ain't really the king. And though they act as a lord, they're not actually the lord. God doesn't want them to get it twisted. On this last day, nobody will be confused about who rules the universe. It will be Jesus. It will be this one who is the, the great savior of justice. In verses 17 through 21, we now see the great supper of judgment. The great supper of judgment. In Revelation chapter 19, we're presented with two suppers. Right? You, got the, you got the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is this heavenly celebration of the bride of Christ with Jesus the bridegroom, and it is marked by joy and celebration. Well, here we have the great supper of judgment, this earthly condemnation of Jesus' enemies, and it is marked by sorrow and sobriety and stunning sadness that ought to make all of us Silent before God. 
these who could have known mercy but refused God's mercy time and time and time and time and time again. We'll now know what it's like to meet his wrath. Then I saw, verse 17, an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. This scene is commonly known as the, the Battle of Armageddon. It's the same scene that's, that was played out at the end of the fourth cycle in chapter 16, where the seventh bowl of wrath was poured out on Babylon to, quote, make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Remember, the book of Revelation is presenting cycles of the same scene over and again. We're about to see the climax of several of those. These who have gathered represent all who have followed the unholy trinity that was presented in Revelation 12 and 13 of the dragon, Satan, the beast, the antichrist, the false prophet. And you're like, where might this kind of scene come from in the Old Testament? Well, this vision draws on the judgment of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. We'll talk about more of that next week when we see this cycle repeated in Revelation chapter 20. But in Ezekiel 38 and 39, there's a great judgment that is visited upon Israel's enemies, and it serves as a foreshadowing of the final judgment of history. Well, here we see that prophecy fulfilled. This unnamed angel invites the birds to gather for a feast of fallen human flesh. In, in the first uh, cycle, um, we, we saw these same people cowering in terror when the, the sixth seal was open. Revelation 6, the sky vanished like a scroll. Same thing as when the sky rolls back and Jesus comes. Well, this is that same scene. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island is removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free, same ones mentioned here, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the, la the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, who can stand? Indeed, none can stand. The only way that one stands on this day is if they stand hidden in the righteousness of Jesus by faith. But those who are opposed to God and have resisted his mercy time and time and time again are here consumed by him. And this is not the first time we've seen this sort of thing. The whole Bible is filled with it. I took out paragraphs here, but you'll remember the days of Noah where all people did 
the intent of their heart was nothing but evil, he flooded them with water. Sodom and Gomorrah, a city that had given itself to all sorts of evils, was flooded with fire. And here, all who have not bowed a knee to Jesus find themselves outmatched and will be consumed by his sword of his word. And they will be left without a burial for scavengers to consume. In Jewish culture, it is highly dishonorable for your body to not be buried upon your death. So when, when this is read, it's intended to communicate these rebels dishonored Jesus and their lasting legacy will be to have fallen in dishonor. It is a sobering but appropriate end. Verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he delivered those, uh, deceived those, he didn't deliver nobody, he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now, if you've been paying attention through this study, and I know we've kind of paused in the middle for the summer, so it makes it a little challenging, but in chapter 12, there was a shift where we get kind of a behind-the-scenes look at who the enemies of God are. And they were paraded onto the scene starting in Revelation chapter 12. First, you had the dragon, Satan. Then you had the land beast, this antichrist figure. Then you have the sea beast, the false prophet. And then you have Babylon, the world system, the whore, right, who calls people to unfaithfulness from God. Well, the way that the Lord is resolving all of this is he is one by one in reverse order destroying them. First, Babylon falls. She's gone, chapter 17 and 18. Here in chapter 19, now it is the false prophet and the beast. They are gone. And then finally, we will see the devil. He will be destroyed once and for all in just next week, unless Jesus comes back faster, which would be better. He is one by one defeated and destroyed his enemies. This is what he will do for all who align with them. If this were a movie, this is where the camera would now pan out slowly, and you would see this world that was created with beauty and splendor. They used to have a garden called Eden, which means delight, that was filled with God and his people fellowshipping and enjoying and there being nothing but good, having turned now to a, a smoking field of, of blood and no more voices of rebels, only the sound of birds consuming the fallen. And it would pan out, and you'd just say, what is going to happen? 
And of course, where the Bible goes from here is there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth that God is going to make. But before we get there, I think it's important for us to, to consider this grisly scene, which should not make us recoil, but it should make us lean in and consider, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for us? I'd like to conclude with three applications. The first, be sobered. Sin is serious. Be sobered. Sin is serious. Do not be an enemy of God. Don't be his enemy. It is madness. It is madness to rebel against the one who made you who knit you together in your mother's womb. And listen, we may not know your story and all the hardships that you've endured and the reasons you've responded the ways you have, and it is easy to point fingers at everyone. But on that day, everyone will be held accountable for what they have done. And this book is intended to make us sober about our own sin and the seriousness and the severity of it to make us not feel comfortable at all in any sort of compromise, to provoke us to respond with faith and repentance. This text is intended to draw back the, the curtain and shine the light on our stealing and our deleted emails and our slander and our sexual escapades and our partiality and our demonizing of fellow image bearers and all of our justifications for all of it. Our lack of extending forgiveness and the right we feel to harbor bitterness. God wants you to know that sin is serious. And on that day, if you have not turned from your sin and trusted in Christ and been forgiven for your sin, you will be his enemy and he will judge you but God does not want you to be his enemy. He does not want you to perish. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As serious as God is about judging sinners, he is serious about saving them. Jesus suffered so that we would not have to suffer. He who will come on a white horse of victory first came on a donkey in humiliation. He who is coming with a sword to pierce his enemies was, was first pierced for his enemies. He who is coming to shame and to expose his enemies in rightful good judgment was once shamed on a cross, left exposed, taking judgment. He who has eyes a fire to see all sin and to consume his adversaries. Well, you must remember that first he, he drank of that fire upon the cross when the Father's wrath was poured out on him. Be sobered. Sin is serious. 
but be hopeful because Jesus' grace is greater than all of our sin. This book is intended to make you flee to him. The second thing is to be receptive. God's word will judge you. Be receptive. God's word will judge you. Jesus himself is called the word of God. And when he returns, he has in his mouth the sword of God's word. Jesus is God's revelation to the world. And every page of this book that we call the Bible attests to him. It's all pointing to him. His word will judge us. So receive it and respond to it. Hebrews 4 says, the word of God is living and sharp, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Same picture. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. On that last day, everything that we hide behind will be gone and it will just be us and God. And his word will judge us. Today is the day to humbly respond to his word. To allow it to cut you. Ask him to cut you. Lord, cut my, show me, pierce me, convict me of sin. Let me not be comfortable in my dullness. But show me your word that I might respond rightly. Be receptive because God's word will judge you. And then thirdly, be encouraged. Because if, if you're with Jesus, you will conquer with Jesus. Be encouraged. You will conquer with Jesus. If you are in Christ, you can have great hope from this text. You see, the main application point of Revelation is to see Jesus as so glorious that you will not give up on your journey toward seeing him face to face. Tired believer, hear this. This is laid before you to help you to take another step, to keep going. Allow the fact that he is faithful and true to affect you. Let it make its way deep down into your heart do not shrug off Jesus' faithfulness, but allow it to strengthen your faith in him. Has he not always been faithful to you? Has he not always been a true friend to you? Has he ever betrayed you? Has he failed you or forgotten you? Has his word ever returned void in your life? Has he not kept every promise that he has made to you? And in all the ones that you're still trusting him for, he gives you this word to assure you a day is coming when every prayer will be answered and every promise will be delivered. And what's amazing is how not only the book of Revelation tie all of these pictures back into the Old Testament, everything we're going to start to see now to the end of the book, he's going to tie it back in to what he promised the churches in chapters 2 and 3. Listen to this. To the church at Smyrna, Jesus promised to share his glory with those who persevere in faith. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
Jesus, who wears a crown, is going to give a crown to us. He says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. To the church of Pergamum, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Scripture says, or what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So there's a sense in which we know Jesus now, but we don't know him yet until we see him. Well, there's a sense in which you know you now, but when he comes, you will know you as you were created to be because you'll be with him. The church at Thyatira, Jesus encourages them, hold fast what you have until I come to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron even as I myself have received authority from my Father. He says, when I come, you're coming with me and together we will remove all evil. You will conquer because I have conquered and then I will take you to that land where will be no more crying or tears or pain and we will be together forevermore. This grisly picture is intended to provoke our hope in a glorious Savior who will save you now. Today is the day of salvation. Turn unto him if you do not know him. And if you do know him, let us keep running until we see his face. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it shows us things that we wouldn't normally think about. Thank you for the way that it interrupts what we think to be important and what the world says is trending. To be able to show the realities of eternity that we so desperately need to consider. Father, we pray that you would meet us wherever we are and that you would help us to behold Jesus. As we share in the Lord's Supper now, we pray that you would help us to, a fresh, to freshly hope in that day of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Come soon, Lord Jesus, in his name, amen.